KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. According to our COVID response levels, I now declare that Philadelphia is moving into the all clear level, effective immediately. Hey, hey, that sounds like we don't have to put on masks anymore here in the city. We don't have to, but you still can. Some businesses may, may still require you to. There's public transportation and all of that. But, you know, we are maybe slowly moving into this uh, learning to live with COVID thing. I'm going to wear masks when and wherever the heck I feel like wearing a mask moving forward. But I think the symbolism surrounding this, to me, is what's most important. I'm just hoping this is one less thing for all of us to be angry and contentious with each other about. And with the spring on the horizon, like, gosh, do we need some good news, like, desperately in the way the world is. And I feel like this is just something that is one less thing for people to bicker and argue about. Just move forward. Keep it moving forward. If you don't want to wear a mask, you don't have to wear a mask, even though still suggest you go out there and get vaccinated anyway. I'm Jay Scott Smith. I'm Sabrina Boyd Circa. I'm Brian Seltzer. And it is Wednesday, March 2nd, 2022, nearly two years since we went on lockdown because of this pandemic. And now today, the city of Philadelphia is ditching the mask mandate. Now we're joined by KYW News Radio City Hall Bureau Chief Pat Loeb, who has been from pretty much the beginning following the city's response to COVID-19. So tell us about this update from the city's health commissioner. Well, uh, she started out explaining that the city is using its own metrics, not the CDC metric. And by the city's own metrics, the numbers are down to a point where the city is in what they had previously designated as the all clear zone. That's under 100 new cases a day. It's down to 87 and under a 2% positivity rate for tests for COVID-19, and it's down to 1.7%. So because of that, the mask mandate is lifted. You'll still need to wear masks in schools, all schools, including public, private, archdiocese, and charter, and early child care, in healthcare settings, congregate living settings, and on public transit. I also want to note that businesses and other institutions can still require vaccine-proof or masks. Employees and people entering indoor spaces still have the right to wear masks. Maybe we've been close to this before. Actually, the numbers were even lower last summer. But I think the difference this time is that so many people are vaccinated. More than a million Philadelphians are fully vaccinated. That's almost 80% of everyone over 12 in the city. So between that and the people who've had it, we talked a lot at early in the pandemic about herd immunity, but it it feels like that's what we've achieved. Now, Pat, just to be super clear, general indoor mask mandate is lifted, but there are still requirements in public transportation and schools as well. Is that true? Well, the schools for one more week, they, they wanted to give the schools time to do kind of an orderly transition, and they're going to require masks for the first week after spring break. And that's because when we've seen these surges over this roller coaster of the last two years, it's always been after a, a break, Thanksgiving, holiday, whatever. Pat, you mentioned that the city was relying on its own data, its own metrics. That was something that really stood out when I was listening to Dr. Bedigal. What makes the city so confident in its own approach, regardless of what recommendations or guidelines the CDC might be putting out? 
Well, it has excellent data. It's it's a data collection agency in a way that a lot of uh, smaller cities can't be. While the CDC is maybe giving out stuff that's generally applicable, Philadelphia can talk about stuff that's really specific to Philadelphia. And for instance, she said if a city had used the CDC model, it would have not instituted a mask mandate during the Delta surge. And in fact, all the evidence shows that that mask mandate during the Delta surge kept the numbers lower than surrounding areas that didn't have a mask mandate. Now, let's hear a little bit more from Dr. Bettigol's press conference this morning. As we've done throughout the pandemic, please give each other the gift of understanding that we can't know another person's circumstances. So we don't want to judge their reasons for wearing a mask if they choose to do so. Now, Pat, you've covered this pandemic from the beginning. Two years. You yourself had COVID. Hearing this message, what did you make of that? It felt like this was coming to an end for a while. And I, I went back and checked and the city's, the first city briefing on COVID was March 6th, 2020. So it is almost exactly two years that we've been preparing and then living through and now getting over this virus with the vaccine rates, what they are, and with people having, you know, adapted to two really powerful variants now and, and prevail with the numbers coming down so fast after the Omicron variant, it just does feel like an end. And if you look at historically, like Spanish flu, that was 26 months beginning to end. And so this is just about 26 months. This was an outbreak in the Christmas season in Wuhan, China. So it's just just about 26 months. I do want to kind of echo what Dr. Pettigall said a bit, though, because, I mean, I am definitely going to be one of those people who keeps my mask on for a little while just to be extra safe, especially on like public transportation in really crowded places. Regardless of people's situations, I don't think there should be any judgment for you being a little bit extra safe. Like, do what you feel comfortable with at this point. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm never going to fly on a plane again without a mask on, ever. There's that too. <laughs> I Even off air, I was saying to Sabrina, it was weird going to a Sixers game with a mask on, but I'll still walk up in a supermarket with a mask on. Speaking of the Sixers, the, the Wells Fargo Center put out a statement already basically saying that's it for masks at the Wells Fargo Center. This seems like it's kind of changed everything. And it also sounds like um, we're not going to have any more regular COVID briefings now because of this. That's right. This was the last one after all these years. What will I do with my Wednesday? <laughs> what a relief for you, We're Pat. We're shutting it down. <laughs> <laughs> now, that said, though, if people want to get more information, even without these regular COVID briefings, where can they go? Well, there's actually, the city will continue to put new data up on philadelphiagov slash COVID. But they also have a phone line if you just have questions and you just want somebody to answer a question. You don't have to look up the data. Now, Pat, we know you've been covering another story that could have a pretty big impact on the literal, like, physical landscape here in the city of Philadelphia. And that's the new development plan for Washington Avenue down in South Philly. It's been highly contentious. What can you tell us about that? Well, Washington Avenue is a mess <laughs> that anyone that's driven on it knows it. And one of the problems with it is that it hasn't been paved in 10 years. And 10 years ago, when it needed to be paved, the city had just started this looking at bike lanes and trying to make streets safer for pedestrians and bicy- 
reckless and they thought this big five lane road with these crosswalks that just go on forever across five lanes where children are crossing to get to school. We just have to do something to make it safer. So they started studying different ideas for how to make it safer. So that's how long this has been going on. And they came up with a plan in 2020 before the pandemic. Had they not come up with that plan, the plan that they introduced last night might have been a big success. It is going to be a lot safer than what's there now. It's a it's a variable lane plan where the road will go down to three lanes for 10 of the 18 blocks. It'll stay five lanes for four blocks. The thing is in 2020, they were ready to shrink the whole thing down to three lanes. So safety advocates got really excited about that and, and cyclists and urbanists that, that are in a lot of uh, good government watchdog groups that have emerged. And so they're upset that they're they're adding back some lanes at the request of residents and uh, neighborhood community organizations. But with the deputy managing director, whose baby this is, Mike Carroll says, is that we got to get it done. I'm sorry, like the, no one is ever going to agree on the perfect configuration, but we've got to get moving because that road is dangerous the way it is. And so this summer, they're going to go with the variable lane plan. Pat, I was talking to Nina Barati, who was at the Christian Street Y last night for a meeting where some of the final plans were being reviewed. And she said it got testy and heated in there. Let's take a listen. Nina spoke with people who were generally in favor of the new proposal and other people who weren't. I've biked on Washington Ave. It's terrible. It's potholes and crazy traffic, and I try to avoid it as much as possible. I've actually driven on Washington Ave, and I hate it because I feel like I'm going to hit a biker or a kid. So overall, as a biker, as a walker, as a driver, I just feel like it's not a safe street. I've been living at 2135 Ellsworth Street for 65 years. I played on Washington Avenue as a child. We hot box cars as a child, train tracks. We, we visit the sheep factory on Washington Avenue. We walked in the middle of Washington Avenue. I can count the accidents that happened on Washington Avenue in the, in the 72 years that I've lived here. You know what I think it is? I think all these folks are coming in from different states, New York, whatever it is, and they, they, they are petitioning council to do their bidding. And it's dollars and cents. However, the way I look at it, it's unfair. Because the people that's been here the longest should have a voice and have a say and decide what happens to Washington Avenue. The interesting thing to me, Pat, is, you know, over the years, Washington Avenue has been a real focal point on how to develop it, not just in terms of safety, but, you know, you heard about, well, is Blatstein going to do this? And are they going to build uh, Trader Joe's or a Wegmans? I mean, that has commercial and capitalistic gain for a few. Whereas you would think with this project, based on what you're saying, like this is about keeping people safe. Like I, no one wants their home altered or adjusted. And yes, if there's less parking, that's a problem. But this is about safety, which to me was one of the reasons why it was interesting that it still seems like the emotions are so high and flared up over this thing. Yeah. You know, people that drive cars and don't take public transit, I think have a hard time imagining slowing down, being on a street that's more congested where traffic's moving slower if they've been able to just 
drive at the speed that they want and park wherever they want along the street. So it is a change and change is never easy. When you said there that it hasn't been paved in 10 years, having driven on Washington Avenue, I'm thinking it's only been 10 years since it's been paved. (laughs) I could have swore I saw cobblestones in parts of that road that I've driven on before (laughs) that have done wonderful damage to my car, but that we're not here for me to talk about the suspension on my car. Pat, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this, to talk about the city's getting rid of the mask mandates. We don't know what you're going to do with your time, but we've always got time for you here on the Johncast. Great. Thanks. It's always fun to join you. Now, of course, you can find more of Pat's work on our website, kywnewsradio.com, or you can follow her on Twitter simply at Pat Lowe. Now, coming up here on the podcast, we're going to turn our attention to the other biggest story in the country, the State of the Union address, as well as the Russian invasion of Ukraine, plus something cute and cuddly to brighten up your Wednesday, because I think we could all certainly use a little bit of that. We'll be back with more after this. I'm Jay. I'm Sabrina. I'm Brian. And last night, President Biden gave his first State of the Union address as president. Because remember, of course, that first year, it's not considered the State of the Union. It's simply an address toward Congress, which he didn't hold. So now, in front of a mostly maskless audience, of course, COVID was a big topic. And the president seemed pretty optimistic that we can start to return to some sort of normal activities around here. Thanks to the progress we've made in the past year, COVID-19 no longer need control our lives. Plus, the president put a pretty big emphasis on infrastructure. We're done talking about infrastructure weeks. We're now talking about an infrastructure decade. And of course, the crisis in Ukraine seems to have just kind of overtaken everything. We're now a week into this thing, and the president stood strong against Russia's Vladimir Putin. While he may make gains on the battlefield, he'll pay a continuing high price over the long run. Plus, he also announced that the United States will be following the lead of the European Union, as well as our friends up north in Canada, on closing up airspace. We will join our allies in closing off American airspace to all Russian flights, further isolating Russia and adding additional squeeze on their economy. So much to talk about, Jay. There was there was a lot of stuff in that it was about 90 minutes, I think. It was. It, it had a little bit of everything there. It had the moments of the, of the cheers, which always seemed to be a thing in the State of the Union. It had the humorous moment where Chuck Schumer kind of false started on a cheer. He stood up and thought it was We've cheer got, time. We've got, you know, the predictable memes the, came out of this. The memes and the gifts and all the fun stuff that happened there. But there were also some local faces that were in the audience, too. Yeah, I thought it was really cool to learn that Kezia Rodriguez, who is a full-time student at Bergen Community College in New Jersey, was invited there. She has enrolled her twin daughters in the school's tuition-free child care program, which was made possible by the American Rescue Plan, hence being invited as an example of how that's helping. We also had Jojo Burgess, a member of the United Steelworks Local 1557 in Washington, Pennsylvania, who trains steel workers and is also an active member of the local NAACP representing the Steel Workers Union. So always cool to know that we've got some Pennsylvania and New Jersey faces attending. Biden is from this area, so that all makes sense. He always talks about how he grew up. He was a kid from Scranton, and of course, he represented Delaware. He shouted out Delaware numerous times, both in some good ways and some really honest ways about their connection to large corporations in this in this country as well. And he, of course, he had to take a moment to note that he did win there for 36 consecutive years until he became president of the United, vice president of the United States. So everybody got represented in the in the three states that we've got in our area so far. 
first and foremost, what I want in the world today is peace. But not unrelated to that, my takeaway from the State of the Union last night, there were moments, brief, but there were moments, when it felt like, regardless of what side of the aisle you were on, there was actual, real, genuine unity. What a concept. What an idea. So foreign. I feel like we don't feel that normally in our lives these days. I just want some unity. Almost impossible. <laughs> I don't know how long that lasted based on some uh, Republican <laughs> reactions, but or the, or, sure. I, Ryan, I get where you're coming from, dude. I, I'm a huge fan of Queen Latifah. Nobody wants more U-N-I-T-Y than <laughs> I do out here. It, it's We, we got to get it where we can take it, basically, sometimes. And we did see some of that last night. For sure. It was just a pining and a longing for that type of feeling. The other thing that stood out to me, especially living in Philadelphia in this area and knowing how pervasive the gun problem is, is there are a few parts of Biden's speech that touched upon efforts to reduce gun violence, calling for universal background checks, banning assault weapons, high-capacity magazines, basically things that are embedded in the way the system works these days that allow guns to be purchased either easily or obtained illegally. He did make it a point to address the issue of ghost guns, which is something we've heard Philadelphia Mayor Jim Kenney talk a lot about. Are those guns that can be made at home? They don't have the serial numbers. They're untraceable. Biden did mention saying such things as you don't want to defund the police. You want to fund the police and make sure that they're trusted in neighborhoods. I think it's the one time like unprompted I saw Republicans actually stand up is when he said you don't defund the police. So in that aspect, he did kind of hit a little bit, a little bit of unity, even though I'm guessing some of his supporters probably weren't exactly too keen yeah, on that. Yeah, I think it unified some people and probably, you know, it, it alienated, upset some other, it may have other alienated people. alienated a few people, too. But yeah. it is really hard to unify people in this country, so I'm sure he's doing his best. One thing that it does seem like has kind of brought us all together, it's really sad that sometimes war is what can bring a country together the most. But there seems to be a general unity in support of Ukraine that, of course, came up a ton in the State of the Union address. Today marks the seventh day of Russia attacking Ukraine, which is seems like it has been longer and also just yesterday at the same time. Oh, yeah. It, it is hard to believe it was just a week ago. A Kremlin spokesperson said that Russia would be ready to resume talks with Ukraine this evening. But in the meantime, their forces struck police and intelligence headquarters in Kharkiv, the second largest city in Ukraine. Like, imagine basically Los Angeles being attacked. And they also took out a TV tower in Kyiv yesterday, and that killed five people as well. This is pretty much impossible to actually verify at this point, but Ukraine's state emergency service said that more than 2,000 civilians have died so far. It's so gut-wrenching to see all of this play out in real time. We've talked a lot about sanctions and the effects they may or may not be having. I read a couple articles that are saying that Russia itself is saying that its economy is taking a serious hit and that people living in Russia are preparing to alter and adapt their standard of living. So again, this goes back to the idea that sanctions in the short term, they might not be able to stop or slow down an attack on a city. But over the long run, this is going to be something that puts pressure on Russia and the way people live. It has been like across the board. Everything is, I mean, Ford has said they're going to stop doing business with Russia. General Motors said the same thing. Shell has done the same thing. The NHL has, has stopped doing business with them. EA Sports, which does the NHL's video games, has removed Russia and Belarus from the upcoming NHL 22 video game. UEFA has removed Russia's clubs from competition in, in soccer. The World Club, the World Cup's not going to have them in there. 
You know, guys, another thing that I can't help but think about during all this, uh, yes, empathy and sympathy first and foremost with Ukraine people living there, but I feel horribly for Russians who want no part of this and the actions of the leader of their country is going to throw them likely into just a horrible state of living. I think it's really, really important to go back to one of the themes we talked about on yesterday's podcast, that many, if not the majority, if like all but a very, very small percent of Russians, consider themselves as part of this with Ukraine. They don't want to see this happening. So I think it's just, it's important as we process and digest everything that's happening in this conflict to remember that the actions of one do not speak for the thoughts and feelings of a whole country. This is just, this has been a hell of a week. Jay, I got something for you. Whenever I need comfort from all the bad news of the world, my Instagram Reels feed is just chock full of adorable pet videos. I, it's all that I get now, and I don't want that to change. <laughs> <laughs> so you can watch pet videos, of course, but obviously the real thing is better. The Brandywine Valley SPCA has launched a new program. They're calling it Pause for Change, and they're bringing therapy dogs to incarcerated women at Baylor Women's Correctional Institution in Delaware. Our own Justin Udo got a chance to speak with the Brandywine SPCA spokesperson, Linda Torelli. An animal can really just stop you in time, wash away all your worries, give you a smile and help you forget about everything. When we're able to bring these therapy pets, currently dogs, into Baylor, it really helps these women just enjoy the moment. I've had plenty of mornings where I'll be walking out of my apartment and I may not be in the best of moods or stuff might be on my mind and then here comes the elevator, pops open, and here's a dog just standing in the elevator, just being as friendly as possible to me. You got to smile, you right? You have to. One of my neighbors has a has a little pug that kind of looks like Holly's dog, actually. And that little guy, every mm-hmm. time he sees me, he just starts running up to me. He's like, what am I supposed to do? This just sounds like something really nice. And for the second time, really, in the last couple of weeks, some nice programs that are geared toward incarcerated women, again, to kind of make them feel like they're still human beings, even though they're in the situation that they're in. Absolutely, because, you know, they're they're not all bad people. A lot of people are down on their luck or certain things drove them or who knows. Some of the situations that led to their incarceration <laughs> may not be what, the, what meets the eye. Exactly. And even, you know, regardless of why they're in there, they're human beings who deserve moments of joy and dog cuddles. There you go. Today has been a good day. We've had a lot to get in here, and we thank you for checking out this edition of the Johncast. I'm Jay Scott Smith. I'm Sabrina Boyd-Serka. I'm Brian Seltzer. And we'll check you out tomorrow. Y'all take it easy on this hump day. <laughs>